And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast. It's Friday morning. A wild NBA week has concluded. It's time to settle down, take stock of trades and firings, and where we go from here, no one better to do it with than the king of the iPad and one of my co-members in the Jonathan Kaminga fan club. Big week for us, Tim Legler. <laughs> Big week for us in the Kaminga club. We're 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 two of the final holdouts on the Kaminga uh, fan club. That's for sure. We we both agreed on that early, and I think we've stuck. We've stayed the course with him. You know, we we were patient with him, and he's actually had his best stretch as a pro here recently. So I'm happy for Jonathan. Yeah, we were on NBA Today in preseason. Maybe it was the first week of the season in New York, and we said we need to get T-shirts made up for. We still believe in Jonathan Kaminga. That's and it. Our belief is being paid off. Um, Longtime NBA veteran, you've been in this business a long time. What was your reaction to the Bucks firing Adrian Griffin? And what do you think of Doc Rivers as an NBA head coach? All right. So, yes, yeah, so, so it was weird. It was, it was a contrasting emotions for me because the first thing you immediately think is that's incredibly unfair to Adrian Griffin. I mean, let's let's face it. It, it is. You you get a team, your first head coaching job, your team's 30 and 13, your second in the Eastern Conference. You know, and and no matter how you look at them relative to Boston, very good chance this team ends up in the conference finals, potentially the NBA finals, and you get fired halfway through your first year. So while I say it's unfair, I was also not surprised at all. And I think actually the first red flag for me, Zach, was when Terry Stotts walked away before the season. I, I you know, I've known Terry a long time, and I think Terry's one of the smarter guys in the league. I think Terry would have been incredibly helpful to Adrian Griffin. Um, across the board, particularly after you know they acquired Lillard and his relationship with Lillard going forward, and just the day to day sort of adjustments, game to game adjustments, some you know some feedback and suggestions that he could make along the way. Very respected guy. When he walked away right before the season, and there was very little information on why that happened, I first thought he's looking at this and he's eyeing it up and saying this is not going to go well. Like this isn't the right fit, the right person for this job. As it turns out, I guess he was right. Hindsight, right? We, everybody was questioning that at the time. He saw something and that was a red flag for me. So I'm not surprised because I think what's happening is the Bucks organization is looking at their team. Number one, we know they're about the defensive issues. So that was a big problem for them. But I think there's more to it than just scheme. Their personnel is different. The way the game is set up, how fast teams are playing, that's a problem for Milwaukee defensively so there's more there than that I think more than that it was look at us compared to Boston and I know Joe Mazzulla is a young coach but he's already been through a postseason run you got Eric Spolstra in Miami you've got Nick Nurse in Philadelphia you look out west you've got Michael Malone with Denver been around a long time and won a championship you got Frank Vogel in Phoenix you've got Teron Lou with the Clippers right so I think and then they look at their guy first year head coach at expected to win a championship now this just might be a little bit too much for him and any year we don't win a championship with these two guys on our roster is a wasted year so they make the move now so I wasn't surprised by it at all to, to answer your question about like my first reaction what do you think of doc like what 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 you know there's been a lot of I'm going to get into this more with Eric name from the athletic shortly so I won't belabor my thoughts but what just what do you think of Doc Rivers as a head coach in the NBA? And what are you going to be looking for first two or three games that you watch of the Doc Rivers Bucks? Like when you're looking for, okay, this is his imprint on this team right away. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of love Doc in the Boston years. And, you know, after a few years with the Clippers, I started to have some questions because I did notice that, you know, th this was a team that seemed to have a hard time getting through those big moments. And look, th his record is going to come up, and it's fair. It's not like you're nitpicking the guy. He's lost five straight games, sevens, 10 overall. Ooh. That's something that's on his record. He's got to own. But I'll say this. I started to have a little bit more sympathy for Doc Rivers with what went on in Philadelphia. Okay. When you, when you, when you are trying to close out series or win basketball games and you have back to back uh, point guards who were all-stars in a given year, and then you get to the postseason in big spots. And not only do they not play well, they, they play completely differently. They lose aggressiveness. And of course I'm talking about Ben Simmons and James Harden. When, you, when you're trying to cope with that as a head coach, I'm not exactly sure like what I would do in that situation. Like We've got this guy at this spot. He's played this way all year, and now all of a sudden he goes into sort of like a dark place and doesn't want to be aggressive anymore. How am I supposed to overcome that as a head coach? And I think it also had dramatic impact on Embiid. I think Embiid's body language, his negativity would kick in, and now he wasn't playing that well. So I I, I kind of had some sympathy for Doc with what he was dealing with with those two players. And now I look at this situation, say, well, I know one thing. Damian Lillard and Giannis Antetokounmpo are going to show up in the big spots. Now, they Lillard might have a rough shooting night. Giannis typically always fills a stat sheet no matter what and impacts the game you know, tremendously. Lillard might have one of those five for 19, five for 20 games, but he's not going to play differently. He's going to be himself, and the ball just didn't go in on a given night. And you can cope with that as a head coach, right? You Because you, at least you can make a, make adjustments with your rotation and whatnot and who you're going to give minutes to, things like that. When, when a guy just flat out doesn't show up for the moment, you can't overcome it. So he, he now has two guys that are going to do it, just like he had in Boston when he had gamers. He had guys that would show up in the big spot. So I think – for this situation, I think this is a pretty good fit. He's going to get a lot of respect. He's going to make them more accountable because he's going to have more respect given to him, I think, probably than Adrian Griffin. His voice is going to carry more weight in that locker room because of who he is, how long he's been around, and just his communication skills and the way he deals with people. He's going to be blunt, and he's going to he's going to be able to get to the, the root of some of their issues and address them in a way that is respected, I believe, by the guys on this team. So I think this might actually work for Doc. Now, having said all that, they're still not as good as Boston. Did you um, did you ever play on a team where either you and or the best players on the team didn't respect the coach in terms of like, we just don't think this is the guy to make the right decisions and you could see it bleed into how, how the team played? Yeah, definitely. A couple times in my career. I think we saw a little bit of that in Dallas. Um, the year 93-94, Quinn Buckner took over. And and, and he kind of butted heads with Derek Harper, who was our only veteran player. We were the youngest team in the league. We were one of the worst teams in the league. And we had you know some young lottery pick type players in that team who were immature, who were trying to find their way. Um, and I think Quinn was like a guy that was going to like really challenge you and he, ch and he challenged Harp. And so they butted heads right from the beginning. And yeah, it was, it was, it became a difficult situation from that point. Um, and when that happens, it definitely is a challenge every day. You know, you, for me, however, I felt about a head coach, the one thing that was not going to change was my approach. It couldn't change for a guy like me, a guy that battled to get there in the first place. Like my approach was going to be no matter who the coach is and whatever, whatever marching orders are coming my way, 
and and look, there were times maybe I wasn't as happy with maybe minutes for a stretch in a season or whatever it may be. Then I knew that I had to go to practice and treat it like game seven of the finals. Like that's how I was going to get it back. I wasn't going to get it back by, by having an attitude or shutting down emotionally or, you know, acting immaturely or whatever it may be. Um, so I had to approach it differently, but, but that's not everybody's approach. If you've got some cachet and clout on the team and you've got certain status as a player, then you're going to react a little bit differently because I think you feel like you can affect change if you're not happy with it. And I think, you know, that happens more often than not now in the league because the top players on the team have more power than they've ever had. You mentioned Philly and you have now sidetracked me. Philly is my siren song. I could not resist talking about the Philadelphia 76ers and thinking about the Philadelphia 76ers. I roll around in bed thinking about the Philadelphia 76ers <laughs> and have done so for like 10 years now. Um, you know, you mentioned Harden and Simmons and it's well documented. It's also been well documented that Embiid has not brought 80% of his regular season production to the playoffs and injuries to his knee, his face, everything have impacted that. But there's also just been, you mentioned body language and negativity. He's been susceptible to that. And like when it's spiraling, he hasn't been the guy to galvanize them and say, we're not letting this happen. And like you think of game seven last season in Boston, they, the whole team no showed. He's had some real stinkers in big games and elimination games. And, and again, injuries chip away at that, but even so the gap has, has been, um, has been too big between his regular season production and his postseason production. This it, it, look, it, this is recency bias. I don't know. Did you see their game against the Pacers last night? Yeah, I did. I watched the whole thing. I hated the whole thing. And Embiid had 31 points and your people are going to say, well, he had 31 points. He showed up. I watched the whole game. He was totally disengaged. His body language was awful. And I don't care. It's a regular season game against the Pacers, but it just gave me these like visceral, like, oh no, I've I've seen this before where he's not a galvanizer. And the whole team was dog poo last night in Indiana without Tyrese Halliburton. Um, this is maybe the greatest scoring season in the history of the NBA. What's happening right now with Embiid per minute? It currently is. He's averaging more points per minute than any player ever, including Will Chamberlain in 1962 when he averaged 50 points. There's going to be a year sometime where that production carries over to some to almost that degree in the playoffs. Do you think, as a Philadelphia guy, as a guy who's watched this team closely, do they have enough as currently constituted to get out of the East, or do you want them to go out and get a one rotation guy, two rotation guys, be really aggressive at the trade deadline? Where are you on them? All right, well, first, I want to just touch on You're right about the Indiana game. Uh, and I saw I, – what I saw, I, I felt the same way. It, it almost looked like they were conceding the game from the beginning. I, I hated it. it. It's honestly like it's a dumb regular season game. It doesn't mean anything. But I just – I just, it's one of those games where you just – it's unfair, but you think like MJ wouldn't let that happen. Like Giannis yeah. wouldn't let that happen. Like the whole team – and Embiid, starting with Embiid, I hated it. I'm glad you saw it because I hated it. Did see it, and I'll be honest with you. Like I stopped watching probably like mid fourth quarter, and I I didn't realize at the time what Embiid had. I looked at the box score this morning. I could not believe he had thirty one points. I had no idea where those points came from because when I was watching, he wasn't doing anything. Um, so again, that, that's first. You're one hundred percent right about that. Now, having said that, do I think that this is the year that he is able to literally put this team on his back game after game after game and grind it out for one round, two round, three rounds, potentially to the NBA finals? Well, the one major thing in their way is I don't think that's they're good enough to beat Boston. 
Are they good enough to beat the Milwaukee Bucks in a second round series? I think they do have enough if Embiid is exactly the guy that he was in the regular season. And I think one thing, and I alluded to this earlier, I think Tyrese Maxey has given Joel Embiid a different sense of buoyancy. Like he's he's got a different feel about him because he believes that that guy is going to be there when he needs him to be. And he won't feel like he's out there by himself on an island because somebody is in a weird place mentally. Maxie doesn't have that in him. And again, he might have a bad shooting night, and they're not very common. But the way that he plays, the relentlessness of his attacking, it's the same all the time. He's always upbeat. He's always confident. He's very good when they need him to be for stretches in the game when Embiid is out. Maxie has been great in those situations. So I think Embiid feels more empowered with his co-star than he has felt at any time. Maybe that is what gives him the mental edge to fight through every single thing he's going to need to to get th this team you know, beyond two rounds because they could lose in the second round. And I think, look, they could go into the Milwaukee series if it ended up being that. They could go into that series and not be favored. So if they lost a six or seven gamer to the Bucs, is that like a disastrous finish to their year? No. Um, but I think those two teams, it's a coin toss. I really believe that, especially as bad as Milwaukee has been defensively. If they don't clean that up, then absolutely Philly could win that series. I don't see either of those teams beating the Boston Celtics. So at the end of the day, does Embiid end up in the same place he's always been, which is out after the first or second round? I always tell people when they when they focus on, you know, Perk and I argued about this on TV a couple weeks ago. Like, if the Celtics lose before the finals, do they have to break it up? You know, break up Jalen and Tatum. And to me, it's like it's 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 how you lose as much as whether you lose. Particularly yes. when you're talking about a Philly Milwaukee series. Like, if you lose guns blazing and you've you've brought the urgency and the effort, and just the other team was just a little better, you got a little. That's one thing. If you lay down and limp out like they did last year. That's totally another thing. I think I agree with you. I think they can make the conference finals as is. I think they need one more guy who can do some stuff on offense, at least maybe a couple good rotation players to to win the next two rounds. So I'm I'm hoping they go pretty aggressively at the deadline, and I think they will. All right. The ostensibly, I brought you on here to talk about trades and the trades that have happened and what you've seen. This is the gift of early trades. We now have some some data about some of this stuff. Let's talk. Start with the Knicks. Uh, who blew the hell out of the Nuggets on the last game of a road trip last night at MSG. The Knicks are 11-2 and two with OG Ananobi. Uh, they are up to 28-17, and 17, fourth in the East, knocking on the door like we're not out of it for third, you know, which is a valuable thing to be because you get out of Boston's side of the bracket. They are undefeated against teams below 500, 9-17 and 17 against teams above 500, which does not bother me as, as much as it seems to bother a lot of people. Ninth in offense, seventh in defense, top 10 on both ends of the floor, fifth best net rating in the NBA, and they are, get ready for this, plus 100 points, plus 100 in only 211 minutes. So, like, that's plus 24 a game, basically, in when they have Brunson, DiVincenzo, Ananobi, and Randall on the floor. And almost all that, if not all of it, is without Mitchell Robinson, who may come back at some point. Ananobi has been unbelievable for them. He's just everywhere guarding everybody. They all of a sudden look gigantic. Their bench has been a little shaky. I think they'll look for a ball handler to kind of give them a little more juice and stability off the bench. 
But what have you seen from Ananobi's fit there? And and how do you view the Knicks in the, the East hierarchy now that you we've had a month now, basically, of watching them with Ananobi? Yeah, first, I, you're right about his fit with them. I absolutely loved the trade when they picked him up. And there were two or three other teams I thought were on the list to try to get him that would have made a massive difference. Uh, he just gives you a dimension with his with his versatility and physicality defensively, the number of people that he can guard and the commitment to it. And he doesn't have a particular, you know, one style of defense. He play, he, He's very smart about the way he guards guys and he makes guys play to their weaknesses. Um, so he just gives them a super high IQ defensively in addition to the physical traits and the way that he plays people. And even from an offensive standpoint, you know, R.J. Barrett was a guy that was really only effective if he had the basketball to initiate, and you already have Randall and Brunson. That That's like, that was a tough fit. And there were some nights it didn't look great offensively. Ananobi's more going to play off the ball. He's a great slasher. He can cut along the baseline well, and then he's a very good spot-up three-point shooter. His shooting splits since he got there, in addition to the defensive prowess, are basically 50-40-90. He's at 51 from the field, 39 from the three, and 88 from the line. So his shooting splits have been phenomenal. You get efficiency, consistency, and then you get this level of effectiveness where he impacts the game on the other end of the floor. So I absolutely love to fit. And as a result, I take them much more seriously than I did pre-trade. Because I thought you know, before the trade, I'm thinking like, well, depending on how these the seeding you know, works out, if – if they can, you know, avoid, you know, or if they can get into that four spot, play at home in the first round, yeah, you know what? They, there's a good chance they win a first round series and then give whoever they get the second round fits. Like, I think they could play Boston in a really tough series if it was the one four matchup in the second round, but they would lose that series. Like, I feel everybody would in, in the Eastern Conference. Uh, Boston is just at a totally different, the bar is so high for them right now. And because they can beat you. A number of ways they can beat you in a shootout. They can beat you in a slow it down game. They can guard you for five minutes to get back in a game if they have to. Um, they're just different. They're at a different level than everybody else. But I think this, to me, makes the Knicks more viable, like buying into win a series and then battle the hell out of somebody else in the second round. And if, if hey, Boston comes into that shorthanded, you know, maybe you pull off some sort of a surprise. But I didn't really think that necessarily about the Knicks before. I, I saw the Knicks as potentially being a team that could lose in the first round uh, to somebody. And, may, and maybe that still would happen if they got a Cleveland or they got somebody like that. Or Indiana, you get a Miami. who we're going to talk yeah, you, about yeah, in a second. Indiana, right. So it's not out of the question they could they could lose a first-round series. But I, I buy much more into them now, Zach, than I did before. I think this is a nasty, serious team. Like nasty. And if they get Robinson back, and I do think they need Robinson back to hit the kind of ceiling you're talking about. Um, although Hartenstein has been unbelievable, and yeah. I am, you know, and he's injured now too, and they just don't miss a beat somehow. If they get him back and he's 90% of what he was to start the season when he was one of the best defensive big men in the league. Look, if they're in the four spot, I'll pick them to win that first round series, most likely all things equal, everybody healthy, whoever it is. Can't pick them to beat Boston. But I agree with you. Like, they're 0-3 against Boston this year. One of the losses opening night was close. The other two, not as much. They played Boston really well last year. They were, I think, 3-1 and or 4-0 and against Boston last year. I think they would give them a, a tough... They're just a pain in the ass to play. And if they got the third somehow, they'd be underdogs against Milwaukee or Philly. 
I totally think they could win that series. I'm not sure I'd pick them. Like I said, they'd be underdogs, but that's a winnable series for them. Even if they don't make one more bench upgrade, and I think they will try to do that. And by the way, Brunson should have started the All-Star game. I don't, I don't, didn't see what the vote was. I don't know who voted who and where. I know Lillard got that starting spot. I think Lillard, I'm leaning to putting him on my reserve list this year. I think he's done enough lately. But Brunson has been unbelievable for them. And I think the second best guard in the East behind a Halliburton this season. Totally agree. It's, it's, you know, and it's, you know, we know what it is. I mean, it's obviously it's taken out of the, the hands of just analytics and just, you know, when you, you guys like us, will just look at it. Like these are our starters just simply based on merit, individual and team success. And I, I put, I tend to put a lot of weight in the team success to reward guys in that situation, because I know that, you know, in some cases that might be their 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 shot for that for that player to make an all star team because their team is having such a great first half of the season. You just don't know how things can 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 play out in the future, and, and where a guy like that, that second best player on a team, can get in. So I tend to lean and 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 give the nod for the most part to guys that have the team success. Can you imagine the New York Knicks without Jalen Brunson? I mean, so no, I I completely agree with you. It, it you know, just based on merit, it should have been Brunson. Did you make your uh, All Star reserve lists yet? Do I you did. Have I, I, I do, Let's, and I thought the I, I thought the East was 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 pretty easy for me. Let's do your let's do East for now. We all agree Brunson should have started. I so that means I assume we have Halliburton, Brunson, Tatum. Giannis Embiid, which is four yeah. out of the five that actually are starting. Um, yep. I'm interested to hear your seven reserves, two guards, three front court players, and two wild cards, whatever you want. Tim Legler's all-star reserves. Go. I got Jalen Brown. I got Tyrese Maxey. I got Donovan Mitchell. I got Julius Randle. I got Bam Adebayo. And I got Paolo Bancaro. And and uh, and Brunson, obviously. Yeah, Brunson is the other guy we already said. So and and then I have another list of like close. Like there was five guys that were like I was debating. It was it was Porzingis, Jimmy Butler, Tyler Hero, Demar Derozan, and and Jared Allen. Those were the other guys I had like strong consideration for. But I, I ended up with uh, Brunson, Brown, Maxi Mitchell, Bam, Bancaro, and Randall. How did that differ from yours? So my starters would have been Halliburton, Brunson, Tatum, Giannis, Embiid. My reserves currently are guard, Maxi, guard, Mitchell, front court, Jalen Brown, front court, Bam Adebayo, front court, Julius Randle. So we're on, on par so far. First wild card currently in pencil, and I will make my final picks next week, Damian Lillard. Second wild card, I have no goddamn idea. I'm I was leaning toward Bancaro, um, but he's been kind of a little bit up and down lately. And my my list of other guys is very different than yours. I have Scotty Barnes, Pascal Siakam, Derek White, who I thought you were going to put on when you said this may be their only chance reward yeah. winning. I thought he was going to be on it. Jared Allen, I have, and then Trey Young, who's now missed some games. And you're just out on Trey Young, despite like 28 and 11, yep. you're out. Out on that. And, you know, and and I, I'm, I'm going to, it's, 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 I'm going to contradict myself in a minute when we talk about the West, but I, I looked at the Mendoza line, I'll call it below the 10 seed 
And I know Trey, they're in there at 10th right now, but they're eight games under 500. And that's why I said I want to lean toward the guys that are having more impact on success and, and being in a competitive environment. And eight games under 500, man, that's not going to cut it for me no matter what your numbers are. And, and Trey Young is not a guy that's going to really lay it on the line on, on the other end of the floor. He's going to play one end of the floor all the time. Um, and I just, that's a problem for me when you start getting into these extra spots. I want guys that actually compete both ends and have had more of an impact on actually winning games. And Orlando, I know they've come back to the pack now. I, I, you know, their start was incredible. And I was, I kept questioning it every week. Like, look at their roster. How is this possible? I kept saying it. Um, truth of the matter is, look, here we are 44 games in, and there's still two games over 500, man. And, and Ben Carroll, I think, is going to be a perennial all star. Um, and I think that he deserves it based on their record, you know, five games better than, than the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, so the gaudy numbers don't mean as much to me in that situation. And he carried them for about a two week period with no Franz Wagner, no Markel Fultz, no Gary Harris for most of it. No Joe Ingles. It was like a met, like there was a lot of Chumo Okiki going on and they stayed afloat mostly with Bancaro doing everything. On offense. We'll save the West for later. Let's so we basically back. we basically completely agreed, except for the last spot. And I said Ben Carroll, and you said maybe Ben Carroll. So we I didn't said I was, I, he was my first. Uh, it's unknown at this point. It's unknown. Sources okay. say it's unknown. Uh, be, let's hold off on the West and talk about a couple of East teams that made trades. The Heat just acquired Terry Rozier. He's only played two games for them, and he only started last night. Another loss for the Heat. Got absolutely blown out at home by the Celtics, which was somehow less disturbing to me than getting blown out at home by the remains of the Memphis Grizzlies the night before. The Heat have lost five games in a row. They are 5-9 and nine in their last 14 games. They have fallen to 22nd in offense. Their point differential for the season is minus 34. They are 28th in offense in those last 14 games with only Charlotte and Portland uh, which are almost not real NBA teams at this point below them in the offensive rankings. And if you look at their shot selection, I don't like to be like, it's got to be all threes or rim guy, but they have reached a critical point of they've crossed a critical threshold of like your shot selection is just too mathematically disadvantageous. They are number one in mid range shots for the season, 15th and threes, 28th in shots at the rim. And that's gotten even more skewed towards the mid range in these last 14 games and you just watch them on offense, even these first couple games with Rogier and they're just stuck in the mud. Like they are, they're a team that's always made hay, even with bad spacing and guys who don't shoot threes with cuts and passes and handoffs and flare screens and all the fancy nerdy stuff done at a fast pace. And there are a lot of possessions right now where that machine just like stops after one or two of those things. And they ain't good enough offensively, at least with Jimmy Butler playing like this. And we should probably have a Jimmy Butler conversation because he's just like, I don't know what's going on with him, but he was injured in his last three games. He's not looked like Jimmy Butler. They miss Hawkes a lot because he activates all that stuff. Um, you know, I like the Rozier trade. I already talked about that this week. I think it's a good trade for them. I listen to the Bill Simmons podcast every NBA episode. He talks about Miami as the alpha in the East. I... I'm all about hashtag heat culture. I respect the hell out of these guys. They're tough as shit. I wouldn't want to face them in a playoff series. But when do we start talk, stop talking about Miami as the alpha and start talking about like 
can they score some baskets? Because they're in the play-in tournament right now. I'm starting to get like, I need to see Jimmy have like a few games coming up for me to have my faith a little buoyed. Where where are you on the Heat and Terry Rozier? Yeah, you might not see that out of Jimmy till after the All-Star game. I think that he's he definitely has a look of a guy that's bored by the regular season. And, and he's never been a guy that, that, for me, has been even, I don't know where I'd rank him in terms of guys in the league that entertain me to watch particularly in a regular season. He's very entertaining to watch in the postseason because the way he digs in and the way he goes about possession by possession, he's got that killer mentality. He doesn't do that in the regular season. So he's clearly in that mindset right now. I agree with you about what uh, several things you said. One, I also like the trade. You gave up practically nothing to get him. Okay. Uh, and, you know, look, as much as I love Kyle Lowry and what he has meant as a player, and he's gotten every single ounce out of his body and ability as an NBA player – you, you know, he's at that stage. You get Terry Rozier, it's a massive upgrade. And Terry Rozier was a guy that made his bones in this league when he first started. We started noticing him because of his defense. Now, his ability to pressure the ball and get his leg top leg over a screen and, like, get in the guy. He loved that end of the floor. His offense picked up. His defense isn't as impactful as it was. But I think in this environment, when he's playing meaningful games and left the situation he was in in Charlotte – and now he's going to be playing meaningful games the second half of the year and then into the playoffs. I think you're going to see that defensive side of him again at that level. He's absolutely an upgrade of what they had. Now, having said that, they have a bunch of guys right now that kind of stand around where they don't have it, get it, and then they want to put it down and call for another screen. Like that's what they look like except for like Duncan Robinson who's going to run around a lot and he's going to catch and shoot it when he gets it. Everybody else, they kind of want to get into a rhythm off the dribble. And sometimes when you do that two or three times on the same possession with different guys, you're going to end up with a late clock contested mid-range shot, which is what you're talking about. And they take a lot of mid-range contested shots, which is the lowest percentage shot in basketball. So here's the good news. We just gave a lot of things that concern us about the Miami Heat. Good news is this. Is there anybody else you'd want to figure this out than Eric Spolster, right? He's the guy to figure it out. And what you've just done is give him another weapon at his disposal to figure out how to use and the best way to squeeze the most juice out of this offense. I, I have a lot of faith in him. I think still think he's the best coach uh, in the Eastern Conference, if not the entire NBA um, if I could just take any group of 12 players that you handed me, like you picked them, names out of a hat, any 12, and said, okay, go win a game or a series or a season, I'm picking Eric Spolster to coach that group no matter who it is. So I think if there's any good news, it's that. They've got him. They've got some guys that are going to start paying a lot more attention to the details of this after the All-Star break as you get closer to the postseason. Um, and I think now they've gotten more punch. Rozier gives them more punch. Like He is a guy that can get hot give you a 15 point quarter like on a night when you have to have it. So ultimately I'm, I'm going to reserve judgment on the heat because I do like the trade. I agree. Their offense can be really unwatchable at times. And you know, last night it showed you a little bit right now, how far they are away from the top of the Eastern conference. And they're seven and 14 people pick on the Knicks for their rate uh, record against above 500 teams. The heat are seven and 14. And look, Everything you said, like Spo is Spo. I think he's the best coach in the NBA. Um, this team has proven it in the playoffs over and over again. I know they did it last year. I just, coming out of the play-in, if that's where they end up, and Indiana just beefs up their team. Indiana's in sixth. 
Cleveland's in fifth. They're going to get healthy. Now they've been great without being healthy. And the Knicks we talked about getting out of seventh is, is not going to be a cakewalk. So I know they did it last year, getting out of the play in and then having to go potentially through all three of Philly, Milwaukee, and Boston. If that's how it breaks down, that's just a tall order, man. I know they, I know they did the equivalent of it. They, they last year it's, they, although they didn't have Philly in the second round, but like that is, that's that's no fun. That's no, no, I fun. agree. Listen, yeah, I, I agree. And right now, you know, it's 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 tough because I think we're all trying to figure out what the second round and and then the conference finals are going to look like beyond Boston, because I, I just think they're that much they're that much better than everybody else in the Eastern Conference right now. And I don't know how you close that gap. But for the Heat, they're that team that – and I didn't talk about the Heat one time, I don't think, the first month of the season. They didn't come up. And then they started rolling a little bit, right? They started playing. And you're like, well, man, forgot about the Heat. They're going to they're gonna have something to say about all of this when it's all said and done. And I have a feeling we're still going to be saying that when you get to the playoffs. Like they're going to do something or they're going to look a certain way going in where now you can't dismiss their chances because of how hard they're going to play in, in, in those spots. Butler, you know, we know what he can do to elevate his game at that time of the year. And then they've got Spo. So I look, like I said, I'm reserving judgment on them. And I might not talk about them a whole lot between now and, you know, like say, you know, late March, early April. Um, let's, let's revisit it when we get there and see where they're at and see if we've changed our minds about any damage they might do or the threat they might be to any of those top seeds. Well, and, and the benefit that they and the Orlando magic have is that there's a huge gap between eight and nine in the play in tournament bracket right now, which means you have a pretty good chance that your worst case scenario is two games to win one to get into the playoffs and not on the bad side of the play. But, you know, you mentioned, like for okay on Rogier, I I think this will look better as they go. I think he'll make sure. enough catch and shoot threes. I like the idea of like another guy who can run two man game with Butler to get mismatches. Like if you put your point guard on Rogier, that's a, that's something you can go to. And already you've seen like if they're running things in the middle with Bam or Butler, and you have Ter Rogier on one wing and Tyler Hero on the other. Two guys who will get into the diagonals instead of just one, because Kyle Lowry's not going to do that much anymore. I think I think will be will be healthy for them, but they got to get they got to get out of the mud. And maybe they don't care. Maybe they're just it's just like eh, worst case scenario, we're eighth. We'll get out of the play in tournament. We'll be the seventh or eighth seed, and we'll go from there like we did last year. Maybe they don't care. But I like the trade. Um, hey, and I'm going to say I'm going to say one more thing on the, on this from an X's and O's standpoint. One of the things I like a lot about Rozier, like I I love Tyler Hero's ability to play ball screen offense, but not as the initial guy. I love him when maybe it's there's some action run on one side of the floor. You get the defense to shift and react a little bit, and now it gets swung to Hero on the other side, and he runs ball screen or he gets into something there. That, so I think Terry Rozier being on the floor with him, and look, they've only got two games under their belt. Anytime you bring in a guy that's you know pretty you know high volume shot taker and scorer, and just incorporate him into your offense, it just takes time for that to sort out for everybody, not just Rozier. Everybody's impacted by adding a guy like that to the mix, including Eric Spolstra. So you've got to give them time to find some sort of a flow to all that, but ultimately. Just having more punch, scoring punch, is really good for them. You don't know this, Tim. 
but you just made me very happy because I took a lot of flack the other day from Tyler Hero fans. And I'm a Tyler Hero fan. Tyler Hero is really good. When I said, I hope this trade pushes him to become 15% more, 10% more, whatever percentage I do is less than 20, like Clay Thompson, and 15% or 10% less like I want to dance with the ball and be the guy, which he's very good at. And a lot of people pushed back to me and said, well, you that's not Tyler Hero's skill set. He's a great pick-and-roll ball hitter. He's a good pick-and-roll ball hitter. His mid-range jumper is fine. They acted, people acted like, and this is, I wrote this column on Tyler Hero two years ago. I said the same thing. He passes up too many catch and shoot threes. He's an unbelievable shooter. When he gets a look that's decent on a catch and shoot three, he should take it because he's that good of a shooter. People acted like I said, I want Tyler Hero to become Kyle Korver. I didn't say that. Right. I said, I want him to become 10 to 15% more like Clay Thompson, which means shoot contested threes. Even if they're semi-contested, you're that good of a shooter. And just like you said, and and be, you know, set some screens and flare out, run some split actions. And like you said, when you run pick and roll, some of them, some, not all of them, maybe not even half of them, some of them should come after someone else now that you have another ball handler has yeah. already compromised the defense and given you a head start. There's nothing wrong with that. I didn't say Tyler Hero stinks. I didn't say he's not a, an all-star caliber player or whatever. I just said 10 to 15%. And I think I stand by that. I think that's like the best version of him for the heat is just a little bit more like that. And a little bit more trigger happy from three. I want him to take more threes. And Zach, I, I'm going to finish this off with this. I, Cause this is such a great conversation. W one of the things that those people need to understand is that when a team comes up with a, with a game plan schematically defensively to defend pick and roll. Okay. Th they're very good typically at being able to defend the initial one. When the so let's say that's Rozier on the right side of the floor, and we know how we're going to play it. We're going to hedge it. We're going to blitz it. We're going to go under, like whatever it may be. There's a, there's eight different ways to play it. Whatever it is they're going to do, they're going to do it. When the ball gets swung, and like so, when that first action is run, the guy guarding Tyler Hero most likely is going to kind of drop off to the lane because the ball's on that side of the floor. The big guy, the second big or forward on that side, is kind of off to the lane. When that ball gets swung around to Hero, and he's the secondary action you're much more likely to make a mistake in your communication with the second ball screen that takes place in that set with two different players. And that's why that could really benefit him as opposed to he's coming up the floor with the ball and he's already being kind of hounded a three quarter quarter, half court. Somebody's getting into him and they know exactly how they're going to play this first ball screen. And there's a very good chance they might blitz it or might somehow force him to give it up or swing it. That's not going to happen necessarily as much on the second action, which he could initiate. And that's why I really like this spot with him. And I think he and Rozier, they need to spend as much time together as possible, man, getting to know each other and bonding because they can really make each other's lives, uh, you know, much better. And for Rozier, he's got to thrive in this. Like his numbers won't be as good, but averaging, you know, 16 on a team that's playing for something means a hell of a lot more than 23 for a team that's going to win 20 games. Last thing on them. One thing we've already seen in just the first two games is, and this is big for Miami, um, just the ability to keep two of Rogier, Hero, Butler, and Bam on the floor at all times yeah. to be really big for their offense because when they have just one of Butler and Bam on the bench, it's nervous time. And when they rest both of them at the same time, which they rarely do, it's like, oh my God, what are we going to do? And already in the first two games, they've had Rogier and Bam have kind of been a duo that plays a lot together. And then when those guys are off, Hero and Butler are on the floor. I like that. Let's talk about uh, the Pacers, who have only had one game 
with Pascal Siakam and Tyrese Halliburton. They are one and three with Siakam. I'm throwing that record in the toilet. I don't care. They beat the Sixers last night. They were randomly, although they lost the game to Portland, plus 27 in the 26 minutes Halliburton and Siakam shared the floor in that game, their only game together, and somehow lost. Um, so it's a little early to really draw any conclusions, but I'm curious for your thoughts on the Pacers, how Siakam fits there, how you see him fitting with Halliburton, what you thought about that trade, and if anything you've seen so far from how Pascal will change their team. It really moved the needle for me with the Pacers, and they've, they've already been a team that's been a great story and, and clearly proven that they can be a nightmare to guard. Um, and if you're not ready to play for, play against that pace and that level of commitment to getting back early, in early clock offense, if you're not really willing to do that, they're going to gut you. And so they already were there, but now you got to go the viability of, well, okay, what are they going to do when they go up against some of these bigger high-scoring wings and like how are they going to guard those guys? Uh, so they go out, they get Siakam, who helps address that because his switchability onto smaller players is fantastic. He's so active with his feet and his hands when he guards guys. Um, and no one's shutting those guys down. It's not. It's never about that. It's about making them just a little bit less efficient to make some of those shots a little bit more contested um, so they're not getting to their sweet spot and going up comfortably. And that's what Siakam's going to do. Also, offensively, immediately, he becomes their second best offense generator. And, you know, you think about the guys that they have. They've got a lot of role players on that team that are, that are all really comfortable in what they're doing, and they've been great. You know, guys like like Matherin and Toppin, uh, Buddy Heald, like guys like that, none of those guys are, like, going to be big offense creators. You know, maybe Matherin gets there. I, I loved him coming out, and I've been a big proponent of his. Maybe he gets there down the road. He's not there now. That's what Siakam is going to be able to do because he can take guys off the dribble, and he can turn – you know, a swing pass that he catches at 25 feet into a back you down post up play all of a sudden because he gets there so quickly. He's got this shiftiness to his game. He's also great, great at attacking closeouts. It may sound like a weird thing, but he, everybody's not great at that. And a lot of guys will just settle and take that shot with a guy flying at him, or they'll put it down, but they don't really get something great. He is so good at attacking the closeout defender by going hard in one direction, getting them to slide, and then spinning back and getting by them where now he's down in the lane and that guy's behind him. It's just this weird quirkiness to his game that he has, and there's a lot of closeout situations in Indiana because of what Halliburton creates and the pace creates and the way you have to chase the ball against their three-point shooting. So I just – this is absolute home run, absolute home run. Uh, pick up for them and now let's see once Halliburton comes back and they get some time together under their belt and they're a, they're a tough road trip right now anyway so when they when they get some time together let's take a look and see if Indiana is a team that we view differently in terms of getting into not not the top hierarchy in the, in the Eastern Conference I don't think we're gonna say yeah although they in fact they beat the Bucks four times makes it sound ridiculous but Philly, Milwaukee, Boston in a seven-game series. Like, I don't know that we would buy into that pre-trade. I'm curious to see how we feel about them matching up with those teams once we see Siakam and Halliburton together for an extended stretch. Yeah, there are three teams in the Eastern Conference with winning records against above 500 teams. Boston, Milwaukee, and Indiana, who is 14 and 13. That's it. By the way, I'm looking, I, I rarely check the standings that show the above-below 500 records. The Wizards and the Pistons, not not surprising, it's just amazing to see it in print, are a combined 1 and 50 
against teams above 500. I mean, that is, that's, you can hang a banner for that. That is unbelievable. Yeah, that is, that is, that is, that is shocking, man. It really is just because of the nature of the league now with, with, you know, catching a team with a guy resting or just, just, you know, the way that the game and the rules and everything is set up and, and just the skill level of guys is set up. To, to have nights where you just, you know, you shoot lights out because you're not getting a ton of resistance and you beat a team like that, one in 50, that's amazing. Let's see. I'm Now I'm monitoring this the rest of the season. When is the second one going to come? Can they get to five combined wins against winning teams? And now this is... Well, if they've got now- one at this point, I'm going to say no. Although, although the only thing I'll say is, look, let's, I'd like to look at their schedules like the last five games of the year each because they, they could get some of those teams and nobody's playing and they might be able to sneak a couple. If a couple of those teams have spots locked up the higher seeds, then maybe they don't play everybody against them and they're able to steal one late. Now that Boston has lost a home game and so they can't go 41 at home, 41 and 0 at home. This is now my statistical record minutia <laughs> thing that I'm going to be obsessed over. You nailed That's it great. on Pascal. I love the fact that he gives them Another offensive option, but not only that, uh, someone who can get you going from different areas on the floor and in different ways than just spread, pick and roll, spread, pick and roll. Like we've already seen some, he's got a mismatch, dump it to him, help comes, he's spraying it out for open threes. We've seen some inverted pick and rolls between him and Buddy Heald and him and Halliburton. I think even had one in that in that first game. That's like a different weapon. It's just going to make them more difficult to kind of figure out when the game does slow down if it ever slows down at all, because that dude is a race car, just like Halliburton is. And yep. defensively, you I'm glad you made that the headline. Like him, Neesmith, Turner at the 3-4-5, and they can Neesmith and Pascal can guard whoever you need them to of the forwards. Like suddenly that's kind of viable um, defensively, even if Halliburton and Heald are the guards, which are obviously they're weak defenders, but just – it all of a sudden there's like a little bit of structure there and you throw Nemhart in at one of the guard spots, like all of a sudden they get pretty feisty defensively. I think this team, they're going to be a pain in the butt. Like they're the, the East yeah. has this just group of pain in the butt teams and they're going to be one of them. Um, all right, let's get to, well, actually, before we get to the all-stars, I asked you, you know, we saw this, this we do have to take a moment on Friday, January 26th. It's only been four and a half days since Joel Embiid had 70 points. And Carl Anthony Towns had 62 points and got taken out of a close game late in the game. And I asked you in your career, did you ever, were you ever part of a game where the point totals got into this range? And did you ever see such a player taken out of a game? And obviously there's a difference between a close regular season game and a blowout or a playoff game and all that. But because there was a lot of talk about like, this would never happen to any other star player except Carl Towns gets benched in a 62-point game. And a couple came to mind, one involving uh, Tom Chambers. I had forgotten about this game. Tell people about this game. Yeah, yeah. And first, real quick, I, the other night, so I, I kind of – I had, you know, I had a, there was a full slate, and I do the pod the next day, and I'm like, well, those are two games I had no interest in watching whatsoever. The matchups were terrible. Like, who cares? And all of a sudden, my phone's blowing up from all my knucklehead Sixers uh, buddies that follow the Sixers <laughs> – and there's there and they're they're going in this group chat about Embiid. And I'm like, I'm looking through, I'm like, oh wow, I guess I better turn this on. And so I turn it on 
And of course, then you, you know you're watching that, and then you find out Carl Towns, Anthony Towns had how many points in the first half? Forty four. Didn't see any of that. I watched both games fully the next day just to get context from it. But here, I just want to finish that part of it up real quick with this: the Embiid one. Oh my goodness, the joy, the celebration of it, right? The love from his teammates. He was hugging people that had official Sixers gear on for 20 minutes when he came out of the game because there's 87 people on the bench, and he went and hugged every one of those people. Um, it was, and then he, and then he had a 10 minute conversation with Brett Brown after the game, who's on San Antonio staff, and he stood out there and he there hugging it out, going, "Oh, the love fest." And then I watched the Towns one, and I'm like, "Oh, I needed a shower after watching that." I'm like, "Oh, none of these guys are happy for him." This is the weirdest thing of it. Now, I know they lost the game, but I'm talking about way before that, up 18, whatever it was, and he's already got, you know, 60 or 50, mid-50s, and he's, he could go for 70. The looks on guys' faces in the huddle, like the way Anthony Edwards was acting and not shooting the ball at all, just everybody looked miserable. And I'm like, that is really weird that this team does not know one. Even on the last drive, uh, Zach, when he drove down two and got hammered, and the, and the league said they missed the call the next day, he got hammered down two, the chance to go to the line to tie the game. Not one player said anything to the official. They just turned and walked down the other end of the floor after Minnesota had to foul. And I'm just going, it's so weird, the lack of support for this guy. I don't know, man. It started to got me thinking about what's really going on with the dynamic of this team. And like, do these guys like each other enough? Do they like him enough? Like to make a legitimate run, or is this how they're going to act when they get adversity in the postseason? It was just a weird vibe. I just wanted to put my two cents in on that. All right, now back to the original question. So, yes, I'm in Phoenix. I'm a rookie. We're playing uh, Seattle. Tom Chambers, who was, you know, an elite level scorer at that time in the league, 6'10 power forward who could dunk on guys and shoot threes at a lightning quick first step. He gets going and he's rolling and he's lighting everybody up for Seattle. And he, if, if I recall it correctly, he comes out of the game at one point. I think he's got 54 points. And ironically, I think the club record was 56. And he comes out, and I don't know if they weren't aware at the time. Ironically, the guy that had the record was our assistant coach, Paul Westfall. So he's sitting there. He has a conversation with Cotton Fitzsimmons. And the next thing I know, they're putting Tom back in the game specifically to go for Paul's record. Because it's, it's a blowout win. And, they don't need him to be. It's not like this no. Minnesota game this week that was a nip and tuck game. This is a blowout Phoenix win. Absolutely. And, you know, now, nowadays you just would get crucified if you did something like this. Like if you took a guy out knowing that his night's over and put him back in a star to specifically break a record, you'd get you'd get murdered because, oh, what if he gets hurt? Mindset was a little different. I actually have a different take on all of it. I think if you have a chance to do something historic in the context of the game, you do it. Uh, and not just for Tom Chambers, for everybody in the building, for all those fans, for all the guys on the roster. There were teammates of it to witness something like that. And he went back in and knowing Tom, I don't know this exactly, but knowing him, the way he was rolling that night, he probably went bang, 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 three straight trips, had 60, got to 60, and they took him out. And then Jordan at 55 against us. We got swept 3-0, but all three were close games against Chicago in 97 playoffs. And game two in Chicago, he had 55. And it was a tight game. I think it was a three-point yeah, game. It's a totally like a different context, right? Playoff game, you need him out there every minute. There's no there's yeah. no talk in this game about scoring totals and records and 60. And so this is just like we got to win the game. 
Right, win the game. And I think we got to within three with a minute and a half left, and he made two straight buckets to kind of ice the game there late. Uh, but in terms of – you know what, to your point, I'm mentioning, okay, a 60-point game and a 55-point game. I remember a game Antoine Walker dropped 49 on us. I remember a game Shaq had 48. Zoe had 50 against us. Like, I remember these games. Those are – when I played, Zach, those were huge numbers, like oh. 50 points. 40 was had an event. 50 People, points. Like 40-something was an event. No question. And that's – I think we're so desensitized to it now that you got to get to something like 60, 70 before you really stand up and take notice, like what that was. So, yeah, that that would be my – my context for you know witnessing what I was watching on Monday night. So I got you the Chambers. So the Chambers game is 1990, I think. And they don't – basketball reference doesn't have quarter-by-quarter quarter box scores or play-by-play. Play. So I was like, I got to figure out if they took him out. Because that was the whole controversy with Towns. It's like, oh, my God, they had the – they took him out in a close game when he could have, A, helped them win maybe, although they obviously concluded he was not doing so, and B, pushed for 70. So Chambers – I and I found an old wire story recap of that game. And he talks, Tom Chambers talks in that about how Cotton Fitzsimmons, the head coach, put him back in the game and told yeah. him to go get 60 and then took him out when he got 60 with like three minutes left in the game and the sun's up by a million points. So it did put him back in and say, go get 60. Jordan in the playoffs, 55. I've just, he did that a number of times. It's like crazy, but that must have been. You just sit and watch that one and be like, all right, it's Michael Jordan's taking our, taking our yeah, heart because- and soul like usual. Yeah, and and I, I unfortunately for me, I, I only played 15 games or something that year. I was coming back from an ACL tear, so I, I barely played in that series. But we had Calbert Chaney on our team. Calbert Chaney was six seven, um, incredibly physically strong, great bounce, like a really big time perimeter defender. At a time when you could put your hands all over guys on the perimeter and all that, and I'm watching Calbert Chaney just draped on Michael Jordan like for an entire game, and <laughs> he still had. 55 of the most difficult points you'll ever see in your life. You know, and that's why I like whenever that you know, that old topic rears itself about the greatest of all time and LeBron and this, that, and the other. And I'm just going, man, I witnessed things, you know, that to this day are so indelibly etched in my mind against that specific player and that game. It's just like to watch how difficult we made it for him. And we had this big front line when everybody had two or three bigs in the game. We had this huge front line. We had the right guys to guard him on the perimeter, and he still had 55 and did it efficiently in, in a massive moment because we win that game. It's 1-1. We lose game three at home on a late game Scotty Pippen dunk when we had the lead inside of a minute to go, right? So you th- just think about it. Like we, we win game two. Somehow we win game three. And all of a sudden we got the Bulls on the brink of like knocking them out in a best of five in the first round. So like that's how tight those three games were. And yet here he is getting 55 with dudes inside his jersey making mid-range jumpers. My my reason for searching for the Tom Chambers game and searching around of others is in a in a position to score a crazy historic total, Hounds may be the only star player ever taken out of a game that was not a complete oh, yeah. decided blowout. Like that may be an unprecedented thing. And Chris Finch kind of had to walk some of his post-game comments when he talked about Carl hunting shots the next game, he's like, well, you know, I wish I had said in my press conference how historically significant Carl's game was and all this. It was kind of an ugly moment for them. All right, before you go, let's do your Western Conference All-Stars. Um, the starters were announced last night, uh, and they are Luka Doncic at guard, SGA at guard, 
LeBron James front court, Kevin Durant front court, Nikola Jokic front court. My starting five would have been that exact group, uh, except for I had Anthony Davis over LeBron. So I had Luka, SGA, KD, AD, Jokic. And then I have all, again, all my reserves picked but one. So tell me what your starting five would have been or is and reserves so far. I actually would have replaced LeBron with Kawhi Leonard. That would have been my change. That would have been my change. Everybody else was the same. And I actually, I'm going to be honest, I struggled with Luka a little bit, believe it or not. I struggled with Luka. Wow. Should that be be Anthony Edwards? And and the reason is, again, rewarding success. I understand how how great Luka is. Zach, I have a problem with how bad defensively he is. Like, his lack of regard for that end of the floor bothers me a lot when I watch him play. I think he's been Um, better this year. Man. I tell you what, when I see him in a, in a matchup with some of the more talented wings and like how inept he looks in those situations, and and still the number of times a game when he's kind of jogging it back a little bit in transition after he missed a shot in the lane or he thought he should have got fouled, and now you know he, he if he gets back faster, that secondary pass that's made that led to a three maybe he wouldn't have you know what I, mean? I I just noticed stuff like that. So, but I understand. So ultimately, I put him in. Luca, okay. Shea, Jokic, KD, Kawhi Leonard was my other forward. I would have had there instead of LeBron. If it's just based on merit, I would have had Kawhi. Um, all right. So now we know who the starters actually are. Then the reserves I picked after knowing that, I just said it Kawhi Leonard is in there. Devin mm-hmm. Booker, Anthony Davis. Uh, Anthony Edwards, Carl Anthony Towns, and De'Aaron Fox. Those are my next guys. And then I had my close guys, which were Paul George, Jamal Murray, Sabonis, Laurie Markkinen, and Curry. All right, so here's where I'm at. If you get if if we posit now that the starters are who they are, so let's just I'll, I'll just work off the actual voted in starting five of Luca SGA, Durant, LeBron, Jokic. My reserves would then be, I'll have to toggle it, but it'd then be guard Anthony Edwards, guard Steph Curry, front court Anthony Davis, front court Kawhi Leonard, front court Paul George, wild card number one, Devin Booker. That's pretty locked in. That leaves me one any position spot for both the Kings guys. Markinen, Gobert, Towns, Shengun, who I think deserves a pretty deep look, and Jamal Murray. And Nuggets fans reminded me that um, in the finals last year after they won the title, I said on a on one of the delirious post-game podcasts that we do on the floor with Brian Windhorse, I said you can lock it in. Jamal Murray's an all-star next year. And I don't I I'd have to go back and listen to it, but what I remember saying, or at least meaning in my head was the coaches are going to put him in no matter what as a reward for what we just saw in the playoffs. And then they said, well, you don't have him on your reserve list so far. And I said, no, I don't. And he's just missed like a lot of games compared to these other guys, but he's been unbelievable, particularly lately. And if the coaches want to reward him with one of the spots, I don't really care. Like I know what that dude does when the chips are down. I know that what that dude was does when it matters. He was unbelievable against Boston in what was a landmark regular season win for the Nuggets and just something to monitor with the Nuggets. 
the Jokic, the Murray Jokic two man game is the best two man game in the NBA. A couple of teams recently have started to guard it in an interesting way that reminds me of what teams did to Harden and Embiid last year, which is we're not letting you pass the ball back to Jokic. We're not helping off of Jokic. We're going to stick to him on the pick and roll. We're going to give you a driving lane, Jamal Murray. We're going to make you score or we're going to send help from somebody else. But We are not giving you the pocket pass to Jokic. Now, that's not going to work every time because you're going to help by instinct on Jamal Murray because he's Jamal Murray. And Jokic is the greatest problem solver in the league right now and one of the greatest problem solvers in the history of the sport. But it's something I'm monitoring, and I'm glad you mentioned Jamal Murray because angry Nuggets fans reminded me of my proclamation that you can put him in the All-Star game today. It was more like I think the coaches will do it, um, but he's just missed a lot of games. I don't know what to do. Yeah, he's missed a lot of games, but I, I, I know I, I thought about that. But I look at how many games has he has he actually missed. So how many games has he missed? Because there's other guys I think that are in the same category. I mean, and how many games has Embiid missed? Embiid's missed. Eight or nine, there, hasn't he? There, there are certain guys who are just so transcendent that it does. I think I think Embiid has actually missed twelve off the top of my head. Forty six. So it looks like yeah, it looks like Murray's missed fourteen. But by the time you know, so by the time you know, if he stays healthy between now and the All Star game, um, you know, what will that look like percentage wise of his team's games? It'll look better, right? So th that's kind of what I was thinking going into it. And also, by the way, look, I, I Steph Curry obviously deserves to be on the team. It, again, it's it's the team success thing, and and you if you want to put Steph Curry on the team and not have De'Aaron Fox, not have Towns, I'm all perfectly it's, fine with that. It's tough. How many it's teams? Tough. though? I'm curious. I'm curious. How many teams going into all going into the reserve selection night that are at a seventy percent winning clip don't have two guys in the game. Well, right now that would be Minnesota and Oklahoma City, and I should right. mention Chet Holmgren and Jalen Williams as both kind of long list candidates for for that last spot for me too. Yeah, it's 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 hard. Like they get one, and the Lakers get two, and the Suns get two, the Pelicans get zero, the Kings maybe get zero. It's like it's 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 hard to parse all of that. The one thing I'll say about Steph is the Warriors are nineteen and twenty three with a point differential that's just negative, like minus point four points per game. That's different than the Hawks being 18 and 26 yeah. with a minus three yeah. point differential yeah. regarding Trey Young. And the Kings point differential is only 0 0.6. Like they're barely positive. So qualitatively, not that big of a difference. But I, I get where you're coming from. And I struggle with the same stuff. Like really, the Wolves only get one guy, neither Towns nor Gobert. Like who, if you had to pick one of those guys, who do you pick? I don't even know I the pick, answer to that question. Yeah, I, I'd pick Towns, I think, if I had to pick between one of those two bigs. Like, that was my choice for the last spot or whatever. I'd probably pick Towns because of the, you know, because of, of what he's doing. If you take Towns out of that offensively and it's just Anthony Edwards, like, as your main guy, I, I, if he missed time, a significant amount of time, I, I think that would be a lot harder for them than if if, if it was just Gobert. Um, because I think it's more about, you know, scoring league now than anything. And Minnesota's number one ranked defensive team in the league. But I think I'd probably pick Towns if I had to pick one of the two. Look, and and regardless, you know, Curry is still so good at night in, night out, man. And he's so, you know, and it's more than just numbers or how he's playing. It's the entertainment value and how he goes about it. I, I guess even if even if for whatever reason he didn't think he was going to get a spot, you make an honor every thirteenth spot and give it to him because you you got to have Steph Curry there. Got to have Steph Curry there. When we had to have Tim Legler here. 
um, second to none on television. Just an unbelievable job across lots of ESPN programming. How often are you on JJ Reddick's podcast? What's the what's 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 the yeah, regular? Yeah, so I'm doing dates? I'm doing a total of 25 of those throughout the year. So I've already, you know, we were kind of periodically getting a couple in a month, I think, and then we'll get a little bit heavier later in the season. But that yeah, that's been great. And then I'm doing the All City Network four days a week, which has been great with Adam Morez. We've been uh, really enjoying that as well. Hey, by the way, are you going to be uh, you going to be out in LA next week? Uh, no, not planning on it. Not that I know uh, of. I will be on the NBA Today set on Monday and Tuesday. Nice trade deadline will be the earliest I go out there if we if we can make okay. it work I think that week but I will see I'll, so I'll miss you in Los Angeles Adam Mars is is as good as it gets um you guys have great chemistry and talk basketball like actual basketball which is really fun Tim Legler you got other obligations thank you for spending time with us go to him uh the best in the business thank you sir thanks Zach anytime man. all right whoo it's been a week, and it's definitely been a week for this guy. Eric Name covers the Milwaukee Bucks day-to-day, night-to-night, drama-to-drama for The Athletic. Thank you for um, spending time that you would much rather use napping, catching up on sleep, um, just staring at a wall maybe <laughs> with, with your eyes open, which is actually a useful therapeutic technique. Doing yoga. I don't know if you do yoga any stress relief possible eric how are you sir uh i'm well thank you for having me and uh and happy to be here to discuss uh the latest uh, with the milwaukee bucks it seems like i i can't avoid you this year well no um there's always something well there's <laughs> always something with every team i mean the bucks are not unique in that in that sure. uh, regard at all there there has been a lot though a big trade an ownership change and coaching change another coaching change um Three coaches being paid at the same time, I, I would guess, ties an NBA record. I mean, if a franchise has beaten that, I would be – the Kings are a candidate. I mean, the Kings probably have sure. the record for all of these kind of embarrassing things over the years. But so, so let's just ask the simple question. Like, you know, I know, there have been rumblings almost since Adrian Griffin was hired – beginning at least to spill into the public sphere in the preseason when Terry Stotts walked away from the job after a little bit of a disagreement at a shoot around. And that raised a lot of red flags because Terry's a beloved figure in the NBA has coached Damian Lillard before just a generally genial, nice guy you want to have around. Um, Why now what happened when did it happen? Like, why this week at 30 and 13? I think it's just kind of the buildup, right? Like you, you look through the questions about everything that's happening and you got to the new year and everything had stabilized, right? You, you have the loss in Las Vegas at the in-season tournament. You have, you know, incident in the locker room and everything going on there and then the bucks just rattled off a bunch of wins and it was like so so before you go people who may not have followed the nitty-gritty of this you say incident in the locker room you need to specify which one who and where (laughs) sure uh in the locker room at at the in-season tournament uh you have bobby portis adrian griffin getting into it you know adrian griffin concerned about the team not going out there and Grabbing rebounds, defensive rebounding has been a problem for the Bucks the entire season. Uh, and Bobby Portis just kind of firing back. I mean, like, coach, you gotta you gotta coach better. Like, we need you to be better and be more in control. And you look at that game in the in season tournament. A uh, couple turnovers late 
they don't seem to be totally organized. They're not sure if it's a Giannis play, a Dame play, a Chris Middleton play. Uh, they're trying to figure all these things out. Uh, and, and disorganization is, is the thing that everyone was talking about uh, on the podium and then also uh, in the locker room. So so you have that, but the Bucks stabilize, right? They, they end up winning a bunch of games. They had seven straight games at home. They win all those games. They go on the road. They win a bunch of those. Uh, you go to the new year, you get to January 1st, Indiana Pacers. It is payback time, Zach. It is going to happen. It's going down. And then the Pacers beat them. And then the Pacers beat them again. And then you you keep going on this road trip. You go to San Antonio. You sneak out a win against the San Antonio Spurs. Maybe the, maybe the game of the year. Certainly the most just combined preposterous plays by giant people with long arms and legs. Just a crazy, crazy game. 100%. It ends up being insanely entertaining. Giannis Wemby, it's, you know, Giannis Wemby won. All right, amazing. So it happens. You sneak out a win, and then you go to Houston and just lay an egg. And in the locker room after the game, Giannis goes crazy. Uh, he He's for seven and a half minutes complaining about the defense. What are we doing on defense? Are we trying to stop threes? Are we trying to grab offensive rebounds? Are, are we trying to stop them on the rebounds? What what are we doing? Are we going over screens? Are we going under screens? What is our strategy? We need to be coached better. I think he calls out the equipment were, manager. Were you there? Were you there? Yeah. Yeah. What, were you standing next to him in the scrum? Like, have you ever seen him like that? Like, what were you thinking as he's just unloading this right in front of you? And get, I'm sorry, I interrupted you as you were no, going fine. through his litany of things. Keep going. Yeah, I mean, so it's the equipment manager. It's everyone. He He's going through everything needs to be better. And in that, he says, we need to be coached better. And you just keep coming back to the defensive end of the floor and things not going great. And to be clear, that was one of their better defensive performances in the month of January. I believe they give up uh, 112 in that game. Uh, so that's that was like a good performance because they were routinely giving up 130 points. But anyways, Giannis goes crazy. And I mean, as far as what I'm thinking is this has just been building. This is a team that their identity has fundamentally changed this season. Uh, and, you know, you talk to people around the team. They understand that, right? They understand that when you trade Drew Holiday for Damian Lillard, you're not going to be as good defensively. That That's just, uh, it's a plain fact. No, no matter what you scheme up, no matter what Giannis, no matter what Brooke does, you're just not going to be as good defensively. And to me, as that's happening in Houston, I, I just thought it was a buildup of all of this. You know, in Indiana, Giannis had talked about like, hey, you know, we're going to be thinking about the Pacers beating us and we need to be thinking about this for the rest of the season. And the one thing that he said in Indiana was like, hey, we can't keep trying to beat teams 140-138. That's not something that we can do. We have to be better defensively. So to me, it was just build up, build up, build up. And then in Houston, you have this explosion of Giannis just being like, hey, this is not going to work. We have to be better defensively. And I think you get to a spot where, all right, that's the end of a road trip, getaway game. Everything will will be solid once you get home. And you get to Monday, two days later, you're it's Bucks Jazz, and the Jazz go 11 of 16 from the three-point line in the first quarter. The Bucks are down 31 at halftime. And you're you're just I'm sitting there thinking, how do you lay an egg? the night after Giannis calls everyone out 
calls everyone out about the defense and we have to have more pride and we have to be better. And, and to me, you get to that spot, you see this team get blown out against the Jazz and sure, they, they you know, won some games after this, but the defense never got any better. Like, you know, last Saturday I'm watching a 141-135 win against the Detroit Pistons. The Pistons are lighting up the Bucks, Which, by the way, came after a game that raised red flags for me, which is the Bucks getting the doors blown off them by Cleveland, in Cleveland, without Giannis. And it was the kind of game that was so bad across the board yeah. that it made the without Giannis thing, in my mind as I was watching it, shift from a reasonable excuse to a, why are they so goddamn bad and clueless? without one guy, granted, maybe the best or second best player in the world and a great defensive player, but the Cavs are missing Evan Mobley and Darius Garland. Yeah, the Cavs have been awesome without those guys, right. mostly against an easy schedule, but like they were down, they ended up losing by 40 and that kind of like underscore, under, under sold how bad they were in that game. And I didn't watch the Utah game because I had watched the Bucks a couple of games before that, but I saw the score and I was like, what is going on? And and like I said, so, you know, you get to January 1st where I think it's supposed to be, all right, there are going to be growing pains with a, a new head coach. These, these things happen. He's a first-time head coach. We're, we're going to go through some growing pains. And, and I think as an organization, they could believe that. But if you go through the growing pains, you also need to see growth. And, and that growth just wasn't here in January. I think their their defense rating falls to 28th by the time Adrian Griffin was fired in the month of January. They're giving up 120.8 points per game, something around there. Like it, it was, it was just so bad defensively, and you just had again. Like I wasn't even thinking about the Cavs game. I had moved on to the Pistons game, giving up 135 to the Pistons and sneaking out a win. But that whole month of January, you just saw all those moments of of the defense just not getting any better. And I think eventually it just got to a point where the organization had seen enough and said, like, all right, this is not going the way that we want it to go. We were willing to go along with this for a while and and hope Adrian could kind of find his way. But he, he just hasn't. And, you know, the the mistakes that you're thinking about, I, I mean, I, I tweeted it out on that Monday night in Detroit. But this one just spoke to me about the team's problems overall. And, and it's fitting that it ends up being Adrian Griffin's last game uh, as, as the Bucks head coach. But there's just over 10 minutes left. Chris Middleton hits a step back jumper on the left elbow. And again, he just made a shot. The Bucks are running back on defense. Three players on the floor don't know who they're covering. They they have they don't know. They hadn't talked about it previously. They hadn't figured it out. And after a made basket, Isaiah Stewart gets a wide open layup because they don't know who they're covering. And all season long, we had heard about, hey, you know, in the fourth quarter, we really turn it on. Our defense figures it out in the fourth quarter. We're more focused. And that's, that's just a mistake that can't happen in the NBA. I mean, that can't happen in a high-level college game. And it's not an isolated incident. These were the things that were happening in games throughout the season. And it didn't matter if it was the fourth quarter, the third quarter, second quarter, first quarter. Like those things just kept happening. And I think when you see that level of disorganization, uh, the I think the organization just had had enough and, and knew they needed a new voice to lead the team.
some of this has to go at the feet of the players, and I'm going to explain why. Like, I don't think Adrian Griffin did a good job, and I was on him from the very beginning, week one, being like, why are you running for Damianis pick and rolls in, in this game and that game? And they ran a little bit more as the season went on, and they are the number three offense in the NBA. Like, that needs to be said. When you looked, but what I, what I said the other day was you would see little dribs and drabs of things on defense. In this game, they seem to be pretty good at taking away the rim. At this game, their defensive rebounding is trending up. And by the way, they're eighth in defensive rebounding. People are talking like they're the worst defensive rebounding team in the league. Oh my God, they lost Mike Budenholzer. They don't know how to defensive rebound. They're eighth. Like they're not 20th. They're eighth. But then to, be, to be clear, it had been a lot worse at the start of January. And the problem with defensive rebounds is teams have to miss for rebounds to exist. That is true, but they're not like they're not like yeah, the yeah. Wizards. Um, and and but then you'd see this is my point though. Then you'd see another game where it's like, wait, they're kind of not taking away the rim anymore, and defensive rebounding is a problem. And it just came to be like, I don't understand what this team is about anymore. Even like there's been a lot of attention paid to. Giannis switching more and taking himself away from the rim where he's a massive deterrent. And yeah, he is switching more. I looked it up on second spectrum. He's switching six ball screens per 100 possessions, six in most seasons. That's been around two. It's not like he's switching 20 in some games. It's like, Oh, he switched a lot. And then in other games, it's like, Oh, it kind of looks like he played last season. And the net effect was like, I don't understand what they're trying to be because they seem to be trying to be something else in little degrees of 10 and 15 every game. Why I say the players is this. So that that's the coaching stuff, right? And that leaves aside, if there's like a locker room blow up or a Terry Stotts thing. Like every week, it seemed like there was something. Um, and that that leaves aside, but, but there was also like the one fundamental change to their team was Dame for Drew. And... That destroyed their point of attack defense. And I don't think there's any coach who was going to do anything about that other than play more conservatively. And I said this the other day, reacting to this firing right when it happened is, you know, I I would watch them play and they'd be pressuring like TJ McConnell 40 feet from the basket. I'm like, man, I remember when Bud would be like, you know, TJ McConnell's on the floor. You know, we're just gonna we're gonna just like lay down in the in their first round series against the Bulls when the Bulls had no shooting and Levine was hurt, they might as well have laid down in the paint and just taken a nap and let the Bulls shoot jump shots and miss. And I and, and I felt like that Uber aggression was sort of having this harmful trickle down effect and almost exacerbating their weaknesses. But look, like you talk about guys like don't know who to guard in transition defense and and aren't rebounding as well and blah, blah, blah. Like, these guys aren't 20 years old. These are veteran guys. Like, they have to take some ownership of why the transition defense is so crappy. They are the worst transition team in the NBA. It's comical how bad they are. Comical. Like, they're they're three Stooges level, Washington Wizards, Charlotte Hornets level, bad getting back on defense. Is some of that coaching probably like their floor balance sucks. They'll often have four or five guys under the foul line when a shot goes up. That's should be corrected. Some of that's on the players too, but the whole thing was just a com- a complete mess. Um, and I just, you know, if you just sometimes defense, like Steve Clifford was always really good about this until this season when injuries and youth have destroyed his team. Like Mike Brown, it's the reason I liked Mike Brown in Sacramento. If you just say, Hey, look, our talent is what it is. It's not very good. 
here are five rules that we have on defense. And with some personnel exceptions that are very dramatic, like today we're facing Steph Curry, tomorrow we're facing John Morant, we'll tweak. We're going to do these five things every game. And we're going to do them every single possession, every single pick and roll. And if you don't do them, you're not going to play. Just that can get you to like 15th in defense. And like, that's what I was craving from the Bucs is just, can you just be about something? But the players were, I mean, like, I don't under, do you understand why they're so bad in transition defense? I just can't remember a team that was this allegedly serious about winning a championship being this completely clueless, getting back on defense and figuring out who to guard. Yeah. I mean, you talk about points that illustrate or plays that illustrate points right uh you know in that final game i have another clip that that i used in my game story for that night where you know malik beasley shoots a three and then it misses front rim and it's one of those rebounds that just kind of sits around in the middle and at that moment you always have a choice do i go for it or do i get back and overwhelmingly this year and and again you could argue it's players making decisions. You could argue that it's coaches not telling them what to do. But overwhelmingly, Bucks players go for that. And on that play, if the Pistons aren't utterly inept as an offense, they go the other way for a layup because Malik Beasley doesn't get it, and he gives would have been a wide-open layup for Bogdanovich. But they fumble it away, whatever, the Bucks survive. And it was just those moments where it's like, to me, there's just a, a lack of discipline in their transition defense. Because they thought at the start of the year, offensive rebounding was something that they wanted to do. They they were allowed to crash. I mean, when you and I did a podcast before the season, we had talked about, oh, maybe offensive rebound something that, you know, there could be openings because of the gravity of Giannis and Dame. This goes to the identity confusion. Like, what are we about? We haven't Correct. been about this thing. Can we be about it? Are we good at it? Oh, my God, it's compromising this other thing. What do we do? Do we lean 10% this way? It just They just had no coherence. And to be clear, this is a team that used to offense rebound. The the late years of Bud, they had decided we're going to win on the offensive glass. But their title and, run and in 2021, they won by beating 100%. the hell out of everybody. It was not a like a fancy, graceful championship run. It was like, we're just going to have P.J. Tucker and Brooke Lopez and Giannis and Bobby Portis beat the shit out of you and win that way. But again, that speaks to identity. That team knew we're a great defensive team that needs to score enough points to win this game. What's one way we can score a few more points? All right, we're going to crash the glass. This Bucks team is not that. This is a great offensive team that's trying to get enough stops. And if you're trying to go in the opposite direction, you don't need those offensive rebounds. You don't need to crash the glass. Just get back and keep teams from scoring those easy five baskets every single night. And and that, you know, that, you know, watershed moment never occurred that where it was just like, all right, that's it. We're done. No one is on the offensive glass unless you're Giannis or Brooke right underneath the rim. Get back on defense. And you just never saw it from that team. And again, like you said, that could be players disobeying what the coaches want to do, or that could have been the coaching staff never having that conversation with the players and saying, this is our identity. This is what we want to do. And that's why, you know, there are going to be questions about Doc Rivers and his tactics and what he can do in the playoffs and, and all of those things. But what I do believe Doc Rivers can do is create an identity. And again, I, I this sounds a lot like Mike Budenholzer and what he does in the regular season. But if there's one thing Bud did, it was figure out exactly what his team needed to be and execute it every single night of the regular season. Those adjustments, 
we're struggling in the playoffs. I understand that. But this Bucks team, as you said, I really legitimately believe this transition defense is so bad that it, just fixing that will take them from 21st in defensive rating to 15th. And then we can talk about like the rest of the tactics and figuring out, you know, how hard they pressure uh, on the ball. We can talk about Bobby Porter's switching or trapping or blitzing. We can talk about Brooke Lopez and where he should be. We can talk about all of that later. Just doing the simple thing of being better in transition defense, I think makes a huge difference for this team. And again, if you're talking about reasons why a coach gets fired, that's that's at the core of it. Like not taking care of the simple things, the low hanging fruit that's there for the team to be better. This Bucks team just, I think, regularly did not actually take advantage of. To, to be just uh, some other numbers that are interesting to me, they are allowing the sixth fewest threes in the league and the 10th fewest shots at the rim. So that's like close to average. The threes number is is good, and teams are not shooting well from three against them. And that's an adjustment Bud tried to make in his last year. Like, we've been giving up too many threes. Let's try to see if we can take away everything. The rim numbers are much worse than they were in peak Bud years, but they're not, like, horrible. But again, being in the middle everywhere speaks to being elite nowhere. Um, you mentioned tactics and playoff adjustments. Someone who's quite good at those things is Nick Nurse, the current coach of the Philadelphia 76ers, who was one of the finalists for the Milwaukee Bucks job when they hired Adrian Griffin. And I have said before on this podcast, Nick Nurse had a lot of supporters or a decent amount of support within the Bucks brain trust. This is my way of asking you, Eric, name. What was your reaction to everybody, Giannis, the players, even John Horst? Um, well, the players acting like shocked that a coaching change had occurred and John Horst, the GM, pushing back, oh, this is just media narrative that the players had anything involved or there there was anything in the locker room. What was your reaction to that? I mean, I think when your best player calls out the coaching in the way that Giannis did, I think that's January 6th or 7th against the Rockets, um, for, for you then to try to fight back against, you know, the team maybe not believing in the coach and his schemes – feel it felt ridiculous because again this isn't a sourced report this is your best player sitting at his locker in houston talking about all of the things that need to get better defensively asking what is our identity defensively saying we need to be coached better so to to try to counter any sort of oh well you know I don't know if he actually, you know, lost the support of the players or they had any questions about what he was doing. Come on. Like, l let's be serious. Like, so there has been, thank, first of all, thank you. Second of all, there has been a doth protest too much, uh, element coming from the bucks and even some bucks fans for like years now, or like, there's nothing wrong here, blah, blah, blah. And like, this was a doth protest way too much. And one of the things that just grinds my gears a little bit as someone in the media is I don't mind at all when you push back on what's been reported or what's been insinuated, or if you say this implication is wrong, that implication is wrong. That's cool. That's your job. Even if I kind of know you're engaging in some spin, that's the job. What I mind is when it crosses into a sort of like, well, how dare you? even make the implication tisk tisk shame on you media narrative stirs and it's like can you just settle down jump off the high horse 
walk on the ground with everybody and have a little bit of a reasonable conversation about this because you know, we know, Giannis knows, Portis knows that this was an organization-wide decision. Nobody was like, oh my God, I can't believe this happened. We all loved Adrian Griffin in the locker room. And I think, I don't know if you agree, I think the most important single reason Adrian Griffin got the job, and please tell me if you think I'm incorrect, the number one individual who went to bat for him to get the job, not saying hire him or else, not saying I'm going to be furious if you don't hire this guy, not saying necessarily I hate this guy or this guy or this guy, but just I like this guy was Giannis. Do you do is that is that what you've heard or no? I think I think that's true, right? I think one thing that we've seen from Giannis over the years is, and I mean this goes back years and years and years, is Giannis is like I don't want to make the hire. That's not what I want to do, and and that's I believe true. I do truly and honestly believe that Giannis he doesn't didn't negotiate the contract. And no, like no, make... that's what I'm saying. One hundred percent. So I'm I I agree with him in that regard, but. He is like anyone else going to answer you when you say, hey, would you mind talking to these guys? Would you mind seeing what they, they're all about and picking their brains and then just giving us a, an opinion? And Giannis did those things, right? Like he he talked to all the candidates that they brought in and in the end, he, he gave an opinion. And again, it could be any any that you know. It could be any reason why they hired Adrian Griffin, but the fact that Giannis supported Adrian Griffin has a lot to do with it. Especially when we spent this summer with Giannis talking about potentially leaving, you know, trying to figure out an extension, and it when you when that's the pressure that you're applying as a superstar. Um, and again, he he could argue against it being pressure or not pressure, or whatever. But like. In that situation, you're probably going to listen to the the guy that means the most to your franchise, the guy that led you to a 2021 NBA championship, uh, your first championship in 50 years. That guy's voice is going to be important. And again, like you said, it was not hire this guy or I walk or anything like that. It was just this is my opinion on the guys and, and this is the person that I would support. So, uh, again, like it definitely matters. How could it not? He's he's Giannis Dedekumbo. Right. Like he is the franchise. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that ends up playing a big role. And then also, conversely, the fact that that guy that supported Adrian Griffin went in a locker room on January 6th after the Rockets game and said, hey, what is going on? Why is this guy unable to figure out what our defensive identity is? Why can't he coach better? Like all those things matter. Of course they matter. How could they not? Let's spin it forward and talk about Doc Rivers, my longtime ESPN colleague and zero-time low-post podcast guest, Doc oh, Rivers. That's rough. Um, I love Doc. Um, he's he, he's good at, at that job. And, I, you know, look, this whole, like, and as we're recording this, by the way, there's been some breaking Bucks news. As Woj reported what happened the other day, Dave Yeager, um, who was a head coach in Memphis, Sacramento, and on Doc's staff in Philadelphia is going to join the Bucks staff. And if you want a tactician – Dave Yeager is a tactician. You want to play off like let's get in the let's get in the film room, let's get on the whiteboard. That's Dave Yeager. And Woj is also reporting that Rex Kalamian, who was a defensive coordinator for some of Doc's teams with the Clippers, is also joining the staff. And Rex is a guy who you go to dinner with him or lunch with him, 
the pen on the napkin is coming out and he's going to draw up schemes and draw up X's and O's. Look, I, and I've said this, I don't like, I don't love everything Rex Clayman has done as defensive coordinator. I've disagreed here, agreed here, but if I'm just saying like, you want someone who's going to get in the weeds with you and be like, all right, here are seven different things we can do in game three of this playoff series to counter this thing that hurt us in game two. Those are two guys that are going to do that. Personally, I don't think that's Doc Rivers' strength as a coach. I don't know a lot of people who think that sort of in-the-weed stuff is Doc Rivers' strength as a coach. Um, and the blown 3-1 leads, there are a couple that are problematic. Uh, the Clippers in 2015 is an all-timer. Um, last year was not a 3-1 lead, but the Sixers no-showing in Game 7 against Boston and completely collapsing on offense in game six in Philadelphia with the lead and a chance to finally get over the hump into the conference finals. And I mean, like falling into a black hole, like forgetting Joel Embiid is on the team, walking around, dribbling, looking around into the crowd with no idea what to do. Problematic. Um, is all that on Doc? I don't think that's fair. And I actually think Doc is underrated as a coach. He's become the target of so much snark, like 3-1, 3-1. The dude won a title, and he was the coach of the year in Orlando before he won a title. And you want to say, oh, he's dining off 2018. That's 15, 16 years, or 2008. That's 15, 16 years ago. That's cool. Like, I mean, it's fair, I guess. He's done a lot of winning. He's had some interesting rosters with some spacing issues in L.A. Philly, like no other coach has gotten up to the conference finals. We'll see if that happens this year. I don't think Doc is like a plus tactician, but this idea that like Doc stinks and Doc's overrated and Doc's single handedly responsible for the three one leads, I think is wildly unfair. I think it's unfair to bury the 2008 championship, even though I have a rule. I don't know if you ever watch NBA Today, Eric. I have a rule that when Perk mentions the 2008 Celtics in any way, I have to take a drink immediately. Usually it's water because, you know, I'm a professional. If it's hey, Friday you know the starting lineups never lost. Uh, it's, it's I don't know if you've heard. So you have heard. I, that. I have heard that. I have heard it. Yeah, it's yeah. a great stat. Um, maybe that maybe the Bucks should sign Burke <laughs> right now and have him start over Brook Lopez. Um, but I have a rule: I drink every time. If it's Friday at three fifty-five, you don't know what's going to be in that glass. That's sure, all I'm that's saying. Fair. If it's Friday no, at three fifty-five, you don't know. Um, but you know, like it. I, I think this is ultimately going to be a good thing and a a better staff than what the Bucks had before. Uh, I'm just interested to see like how quickly we see the impact and where specifically we see it. And that is like, I kind of don't know what Doc's like initial plan is going to be. I, I looked for things in the one Joe Prunty game, Joe Prunty one and oh, uh, as interim head coach, uh, congratulations, amazing record king of the interims. Didn't really see too much of, of note in that game, but what what's like game one of the doc era, What's the first thing you're looking for? Is it just transition defense, basically? I mean, I think it's a couple of things on, on the defensive side. It's one, transition defense. Like, am I going to see Malik Beasley or Chris Middleton crashing from the corners? Like, that that's something I want to see. Like, because if they're not, I'm not going to say the transition defense is fixed, but if, you know, we go through the first those half... Are, of that, those players are not good offensive rebounders, by the way. And and to be clear, the Bucs have been terrible as an offensive rebounding team this season. Uh, so that has not worked. So that's the first thing, right? Like, uh, is it, are they done crashing the corners? Like with guys that aren't good offensive rebounds. Uh, and then to me, the second thing is like, just how high are the Bucs picking people up, up the floor? Like, uh, am I going to see any more of those TJ McConnell situations? Because as you mentioned, 
when it was the guards covering TJ McConnell, that's what they did. Uh, when Chris Middleton covered TJ McConnell in those games, Chris Middleton was at the free throw line. He, he got all the way back in transition. And he just sat at the free throw line. You mean a veteran player can improvise something smart in the middle hey, of a defense hey, in the middle of hey. a game? All, all I'm saying is that's what I saw. Uh, so to me, just seeing all of that, because we talked about the scheme and, you know, one of the big stories of this season was first four games of the season, Brooke is out there blitzing, trapping at the level of the ball. And the team essentially went to Griff and said, come on, the, stop. Like Brooke can't do that anymore. And then the, to Griff's credit, he said, all right, Brooke, you're back at the rim. But to me, what happened there was Brooke was the one person that changed. Everybody else was still trying to execute this other scheme that's really aggressive on the ball, that's that's trying to trap and switch and do all these things. So it's one person like doing the thing that he's really good at, and then everybody else trying these other things. And again, the Bucks wanted change. They wanted to try new things this year. They wanted to go in a different direction after five years of Mike Boonholzer. But that wasn't cohesive. That, that doesn't go together. If Brooke is in drop and Malik Beasley's pressuring at 35 feet, that is 30 feet of coverage that Brooke has to center field. That's a that's a deep center. That's polo ground center field. Like that, well, I like that, that reference that, as an old too, school baseball fan. That made me happy. It's too it's too far. So just the cohesiveness of everything. So transition defense is number one to where people are pressuring. And, and that alone starts it. And, and then you mention, you know, Doc and like the cachet and the gravitas. I do think there are some more difficult conversations that have to occur with Giannis and Dame in trying to figure all of that out, right? And maybe it's not difficult. Maybe you just say, hey, go run pick and roll a million times and everyone will be happy. Um, but also, I think you got to figure that dynamic out a little bit because while the offense has been great, it has been pretty. I don't think anyone's really enjoyed watching them do their thing. Uh, and the, the moments where the gravity of Damian Lillard at the three-point line and the gravity of Giannis at the rim have multiplied each other has been rare. And and those are the moments that if we're talking about this offense and this team going to try to win a championship, you have to see those moments more often. And I think Doc is the type of leader, the type of person that can have those conversations. So that that is why, you know, I've pushed back on, you know, Doc being a terrible coach and stuff like that, just because I do think his tactics are better than people give him credit for. But the big thing, like the second level of this is like, you got two superstars and you got to have someone that can have conversations with them. And Doc is the type of guy that can actually get that done. Well, and and to somewhat mitigate the criticism for me and others that they did not run enough Dame Giannis pick and roll, what they discovered immediately in preseason, we talked about it was, that was going to be a traffic jam for Giannis every time he caught the ball. And a lot of those possessions are going to be redirected to threes for Lopez, threes for Crowder, threes for Connaughton, who's fallen like to being a total fringe guy, which is his problem. And like, that's not so fun for superstar players to do that every time. So it was a little more complicated than we thought there should still be more of it. And let me be clear on, on that. Um, I still think this team could win the championship as much noise. Yep. Look, I picked Boston at the beginning of the season. I will not, relent from that i think boston is the best team but these guys have damon Giannis. their chemistry has gotten better i don't i i 
I would love to trust one more wing player beyond Chris Middleton and Malik Beasley, like one more guy, because Malik Beasley is going to get lit up defensively in some games. Chris has amped up his minutes. That's a good sign. Like they're, I said this last week, they're plus 15 with good numbers, great numbers on both ends with their four best guys on the floor. Dame, Chris, Giannis, Brooke, like the, under the hood, there are some signs that this is a championship caliber team. And I will consider them as such, as long as those two dudes at the top of the roster are healthy. Will I pick them? No, I'm picking Boston. Uh, and they're going to have to fight against a tough schedule to maintain the two or three seed. Now, if they beat Cleveland tonight, that's going to help another game of cushion. The Knicks are coming and like, you'd rather all things considered be two and three than four, obviously, because then you got to face Boston all, all likelihood in, in the second round. But I still think they're good enough to do it. And I'm just gonna, but let me just give you a tip as someone who's watched Doc Rivers playoff teams very closely from courtside and from television. <laughs> if it's the if it's the fourth quarter of a massive game and there's like a 7-0 run from the other team and you look at Doc and his face looks so tight that you think it's going to start to crack into pieces like his mouth somehow extends across the entire width of his face and it's just so tight. If you can start writing the Bucks blew the game column at the, something about that face. I call it the Doc stress face. It just looks like implausibly tight. Like it could just <laughs> like you can barely get a word out. Just be on the lookout for that face. That's all I'm saying. Noted. I I will I will make sure that I have my binoculars ready and I can try to get a good close look at, at Doc's face. Is that yeah? Your out. seats are pretty high up at, at the Pfizer <laughs> Forum. Uh, Eric Name does just an unbelievable job covering this team, and it has been a big job for a long time, and will continue to be as long as there is a, a justifiably and a rightfully demanding superstar, uber super duper star in the middle of it. Read all of his stuff at the Athletic. He's been all over this story and everything, all Bucks related. I hope tonight. You can settle in after a game and have a beverage and just, just, uh, I hope like just a quiet weekend, Derek. Thank you for joining us. Well, you know, Zach, it's a back to back. And then I go on a five game West coast trip. So I'm sure that that moment of Zen is, is going to escape me for another probably two. Weeks. Maybe a good movie on a flight. How about that? <laughs> All right. Thank you, Eric. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.